It's like asking, what's the business value of your fuel gauge? It gives you telemetry that you can use to make other things better. On its own, it has no utility. It's a gauge, right? It's a needle moving back and forth. But you can make more educated choices about where you're driving, which stop to take, where you're going to fuel up if you know how much gas is left in the tank. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. With me today is Omkar Arasaratnam. He has been on the show before. He and I covered supply chain security a few shows back. It actually made my uh, top five shows of all time list that I posted on LinkedIn just recently. Uh, Omkar's got an illustrious past. Last time he was on the show, I rattled off about 10,000 qualifications, experiences, and backgrounds. Um, I'm not going to bother rehashing all that. I will say that Omkar is looking for new opportunities. Uh, if you know of anything cool for a serious technology leader, ping me, and I will uh, introduce you to Omkar if the job seems worthy enough. <laughs> all right. I'm just a software engineer that's been doing security for 20 years. That's all. There we go. Software engineer who's been doing security for 20 years, but he's also a leader. Let's get real here, people. <laughs> Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford, president and CISO at Alan Alford Consulting. All right, so our topic today, Omkar and I came up with a crazy one. We're going to challenge each other. It's almost a game. It's going to be called technical case versus business case. And the idea is we're going to go over different facets of the cybersecurity operation. Uh, and we, as the security leaders, have to make a compelling case for the uh, deployment in question. And that has to include business case, not just technical case. Now, the tricky bit for this whole game is the fact that Omkar is one of my favorite technologists, not just technology leaders, but technologists. And every time we get together, he ends up teaching me something I didn't know from the tech side of the house. We always end up geeking out. I get excited. I ask more questions. And the next thing I know, we're having an entirely technical conversation. So this is going to be a real challenge for the both of us, because whenever we get together, we tend to not drift towards business case. So there you have it. Let's get started. Omkar, are you ready to play, my friend? I'm ready to go, my friend. All righty, here we go. Our first one, uh, we'll, we'll start off with a softball one. We're going to go with MFA. You go first. All right. So I like MFA for all the reasons from a security and technical perspective. And I think from a security and technical perspective, the easy stuff to do is definitely to enable whether it be something like Secure Key, which is available on everybody's devices now, whether you're running Windows or the Apple ecosystem or with Google, it's just available. And while I've always been a strong advocate of hardware FIDO tokens like YubiKey and Titan Keys and all that stuff, you know, this passes the make life easy ohm car rather than make life hard test. Yes. The after getting the primary authentication path, like your people into Active Directory or your people into their email, the bit that does get a bit hard and where I start to see people losing momentum and perhaps missing the business case or technical case behind it is when you start thinking about either machine to machine credentials or stuff that may not be part of the traditional authentication mechanism of modern applications. Like how are you going to single sign on with MFA into your mainframe? That kind of thing. I'd love to get some of your thoughts, Alan, in terms of where you see the opportunities with some of that next kind of tranche, because that's yeah. one that I struggle with in rationalizing. I, I, I feel you. Um, I, I'm going to say, you know, and I'm sitting here thinking about a SOC 2 audit I just recently went through where uh, we used one of those automated tools, like, you know, the, the new wave of tools that's out there to 
automate SOC 2, com, you know, uh, compliance, they call it. Some of them, of course, it's not compliance. That's another story. But, you know, automating your SOC 2 or ISO journey or whatever it might be, you're, you know. And the idea is they gather evidence, they plug in, they they gather things. And one of the deals they can do is they can plug into O365 or Google Workspace or whatever. They can plug in there, they can pull up your accounts, and they can see who does and doesn't have MFA. And they'll give you a list of all the accounts they found that don't have MFA. And, of course, I see the list and what's on the list. It's all services accounts, right? Yep. Um, the humans all have MFA. The services accounts don't. And my take on services accounts, anytime a machine is going to be talking to a machine, I don't want to try to impose MFA of the same sort I'm imposing on my people. And to your point, impose is really not the right word. If it's done right, it is pretty clean and pretty easy to use. Um, but I think a two-way key exchange is probably the best way for machines to talk to machines, if that's viable. To your point, you got mainframes, you got these legacy systems where a, a key exchange isn't possible. All it can be is password credentials. In which case, if you can if you can somehow craft the op- application layer to do two-way authentication, even with passwords, where it's like I check in with you, you check in with me. Now we know we're cool. Now we proceed as much as possible. I just want that two-way exchange, right? And if I can't have that. And I'm finally forced to truly, truly, truly be cornered. Uh, all I can do is a one-way password only, no key, no MFA, nothing fancy or modern. Just give it a password. And, and, and the password requirements may be crappy at that point as well. I'm going to do that to the best of my ability, strongest password I can muster, and maybe have a regular change password operation. Maybe try to put some rate limiting on how often you can try to log in, do some of the basics and fundamentals. You know, that's what I'm going to do there. So that was a very technical answer to your question. Um, my business case for all this, uh, for MFA, honestly, I'm going to step all the way back from all of it and say the number one business case for MFA is, dude, best thing to block ransomware. And I honestly think I don't need much more business argument than that to get the businesses buy-in. Now, when I'm talking to engineering and getting into these nuts and bolts, that's where your your question comes up. And and I think the answer is the, the strongest we can do to be anti-ransomware, let's get there, gang. So the ransomware angle is in order for the ransomware to authenticate with the account, the human would have had to put in the second credential in order to give them access to the resource. Is that exactly. it? Exactly. Phishing emails yeah. are nulled and voided by MFA is effectively my, my number one business argument for MFA. Yeah. I mean, especially if we're using strong authentication methods like secure key or FIDO keys and things of the like, where I see that kind of falling down and people that don't dig into it enough, maybe falling into a bit of a trap is of course, if you're doing something like SMS code or HMAC, like Google Authenticator, you're not going to have that secondary mutual authentication that you're signing into the right thing as well. The other bit that you mentioned, and I love this, the bane of any kind of authentication method are long-lived credentials, ones that aren't rotated or ones that when you have a hardware key or something backed by a hardware key, you have this very tight binding that makes it extremely difficult, if not mathematically impossible, to extract a private key, which does the bit. It, it makes it very hard to extract the private key. And therefore, this long-lived credential that you have in a physical token or in your phone or in the TPM chip of your laptop, you can feel safe about. But if you do have to resort to a single-factor authentication and a password, a random smashing of characters, then I love the idea that you have about regularly rotating it. I mean, it's similar when we think of stuff like JWAT tokens, 
the reason that they're not long lived is because we can't trust that they're being securely stored. This is also, I think, the tripping hazard that people get into when it comes to attacks like cookie theft, right? If you have ransomware on your system and it gets into your browser's storage layer and it can snarf the cookies that are used to authenticate you and you don't have a sensible timeout on those cookies, then it's all for naught. I think we actually saw this with, um, I forget which of the most recent hacks it was, but there was certainly a hack in recent memory where it was a vendor whose browser or cookie storage was used to reauthenticate uh, the criminal into the enterprise. And I think we also need to be mindful of that, right? No, we, we absolutely do. And that's a, that's a great and compelling um, facet of it. I, you know, it's funny here at home, jumping back and forth from the personal computer to the work computer to the podcast computer. I've got, you know, I've got a different podcast computer in the booth. Um, I'm logging into the same things on all three computers on a pretty regular basis, albeit not logging into work stuff from the other two. But, you know, let's say I, I log into my podcast distribution platform on at least two of those three computers. Those guys make me reauthenticate. Even with Google Federation, I have to reauthenticate every 0.5 seconds is what it feels like. <laughs> um, and it annoys the living piss out of me. But every time it happens, I think, good for them. Um but there I am as a technologist understanding what's going on. You get it. I get it. What's our business case to tell the business, oh, yeah, you, this whole once you've logged in, you don't have to log in for a week thing uh, or a day thing. You know, where do you draw that line and how do you sell that to the business? What's your business case for that one? So I think that's where we start to talk about it using our favorite frame of risk management, right? So maybe if you have something, let's say a fairly trivial service, maybe something like your company's intranet portal, not a lot yep. of sensitive information. You still want to make sure it's the right people that are getting access to the thing. Maybe you allow 30 days or ad infinium kind of cookie persistence. However, if it's something like your payroll server or the code repo or your build machines, Maybe that's something where you have a much tighter, if not zero, must reauthenticate every time kind of session lifetime. And I think if we use that kind of thinking, you get out of the difficulty that you're mentioning. But I think the real solution, and I'm, I'm sorry to keep banging on this drum, but I really like the way Secure Key does it. And the premise is that it's all hardware back, which means that it is, I'm not going to say impossible because you know what happens when we say impossible in security land. Um, but it's really darn hard for malware to be able to extract the root private key from that storage layer and decrypt all the other things. So I, I have a lot of confidence in that. And I think if you have that kind of backing store for your secrets, then Bob's your uncle. They don't have to worry about having the mandatory reauthentication on every startup. I mean, it changes the risk equation. So, so there's a compelling business argument to get more serious about your vault itself, right? Like, let's let's get past the old school HSM model. Um, let's get let's get into something more modern. Let's get into something where where you know, and, and not LastPass either. Let's say, <laughs> because that you know, you, you said that about centralizing the one true key, and I was like, uh huh, we've seen that fail. We have, yeah. I, I mean, personally, on my own personal stuff, I don't, I use a password manager that is local that I control the distribution of. And look, it's, is it perfect? No. But I think the other issue you get into, like there's a reason people were targeting LastPass, where all the stuff is. It's why John Dillinger robs the banks, right? That's where all the passwords are. So I think for our case, not to say that, you know, we don't have, bad people don't have compelling reasons to attack the Cyber Ranch or Casa Omkar. 
but the amount of cyber ranch has been hit. How did you respond? What was your business case? It's a really good question. So what happened was, of course, I was on vacation internationally, nonetheless, when it all went down. The email address used uh, associated with the feed itself. So your distribution platform for a podcast has to have an email address. That email address is associated with the feed. That email address had second factor authentication on it, but there was a recovery email that did not. Got it. And that recovery email belonged to another entity who had a web portal where they didn't rate limit. So brute forcing the backup email address was completely viable and doable. And I had a pretty good password on there. Not a great one. Pretty good. Um, but the brute forcing, it didn't matter how good it was. Um, they were able to hammer on the web interface, get that password, use that password, use that email to recover and then change it. And they basically redirected my stream to a new stream. And when it was all said and done, no new shows were appearing for some reason. Everyone was subscribed to the old stream and the new shows were on a new stream and near the twain shall meet. So I had all these listeners going, what's the deal? You're referencing your shows on LinkedIn, but I haven't heard one in three weeks. And I'm like, oh, oh gosh. Yeah. So all that because of um, not second factor, but because of recovery email being an option on first factor. Yeah. So that, that side channel that people use as a matter of convenience or backup in case, that's something that we should also think about locking down because to your point, like as an example, I think I was amazed. I used login.gov to get onto the IRS website and it uses secure key. It's phenomenal, but then it gives me a fallback to text messaging. And I'm like, oh, you it was so close. Even O365, the default on second factor assumes text message. And once you tell it some other option, you have to go in and manually delete text message as one of the viable means. Oh, gosh. Because they, they, they don't want the hassle factor of I've locked myself completely out and now I'm calling tech support. They're, they're leaving that fallback second factor in there. Right. It is. It is. And I think the other thing, much like back in the day, I used to be a system administrator and we'd always tease the project executives and say, of course, we backed everything up. Haven't tried the restore, though. But getting applying that to this problem, I think one of the other things that we should really be thoughtful about, and this gets back to your suggestion of rotating credentials, is to exercise those things in a automated and durable way and regularly check them. Even when we're planning for all the bad things that could happen, like what happened with the podcast and stuff like that, I'm sure it was a pain in the butt for you to have to go through and figure out all the places that you now had to change the credential that you just changed. So the more that we can make credential refresh automated for the sake of being a durable process, I think the better it gets. Let's pause right there for a quick word from my old alma mater, TrustMap. Is your cybersecurity team buried in spreadsheets? TrustMap provides the data, insights, and tools you need to make informed decisions about your cybersecurity strategy while reducing manual effort by up to 70%. Get your free board reporting toolkit and schedule a demo at TrustMap.com today. That's T-R-U-S-T-M-A-P-P.com. Yeah, no, I agree. I just, and I'm, and I'm thinking here in terms of business case, because again, what, what we're saying is we're going back to a business and we're saying, here's this incredibly complex landscape. We're advocating for an expensive new solution that's going to slightly intervene in everyone's daily lives for the, for the primary. And then for backups, we're getting into further convoluted stuff like we're going to force rotation, et cetera, et cetera. That's a hard sell to the business. So remember, this is our business case show. How the heck do we justify all of that? and get the business to onboard. Like I'm almost picturing a red team showing, you know, oh, look, we popped. 
Time to rotate. Oh, we popped. Time to rotate. See how quickly we're popping? You need to rotate more often than we're doing it. Like, that would be the, for that facet. That was the first thing that came to mind. But that's not a business case. That's FUD. Yeah, you're right. But I think what ends up being part of the business case, and you know, in my last life, I was very close to global regulations and things of that nature. I think you're going to start seeing more regulations mandate to effect, and it will be inevitable that that will start to shift everything up. Once you have to do that and call it right, wrong, or, you know, techies complaining about what the lawyers are asking for, whatever it is, if you're just going to have to do the darn thing, you're going to have to solve two parts of it. One, from an infrastructure perspective, you're going to have to make sure that when something does go awry, that you have a cheap from cost of hours perspective way of fixing it. And then on the other side of it, and perhaps this is what continues to leave the soft white underbelly of 2FA backups exposed. You're going to have to come up with a rather friction-free way of allowing people when they forget because they dropped their phone and the screen smashed or, you know, whatever the case is, access to a backup mechanism. When I went through the O365 and told it, no, 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 that phone and text default that you insisted I have at the beginning, I have now deleted that. And literally my two MFA choices are a YubiKey or my phone. What happens if my phone and my YubiKey are in my backpack and my backpack gets jacked when I'm traveling through Europe and suddenly I'm like, well, I can't log into anything. I am cheesed. It's a nightmare support desk call. So I have that problem. Imagine Omkar on his iPhone 10 standing at the MTA. I'm trying to remember which MTA stop it was. It was one of the New York subway stops. And Butterfingers, phone dropped out of my hand, screen smashed. All of my Google Authenticator stuff was on there. And I managed to get everything back, which on one hand, you know, made me extremely uncomfortable about the back channels that could or side channels that could be used. On the other hand, the one app that I wasn't able to recover it from was Uber. And I literally lost my Uber account, which I was a frequent Uber user. I mean, I had pretty good standing there. And there wasn't a good way of me being able to identity proof myself in the event I had dropped my phone. No, to be fair, Uber does provide the option to write down backup codes. And of course, I had not. <laughs> but yeah, it's um, I think the so I think the business case to get back to it is definitely one of compliance. Um, It's just it's going to be inevitable. It's going to happen. I think the I really like the idea that you raised in terms of ransomware protection. Also, so enabling it on things that are financially sensitive could also be a way to reduce fraud costs and things of that nature. Um, and perhaps enabling it from a administrative perspective or from a build and code signing perspective could also, I mean, I guess the intangible is how do you, how do you quantify to a business that the value of ensuring that only good people have written your code, right? So if you're a software company and, you know, you've got people submitting stuff to your code base, like maybe it's a Solar winds angle, right? I was about to say FUD again, but boy, you can point to solar winds. You can, you can. And I think, I mean, that again gets into a bit of um, the underbelly, right? Like if you're only protecting the front door with 2FA and somebody finds a way into like a local administrator account in Windows. Right, right. That 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 systems account that, that isn't using MFA that we've already talked about, right? There it is. Maybe we need to start thinking about a different way of authenticating those systems. So one of the ideas that we had at my last employer was the, the code itself had identity. Like it wasn't just Alan accessing the web service. The web service itself had a cryptographic identity. I was about to say passwordless, but for code chunks. 
What is the biometric algorithm for a chunk of code? Whatever you can come up with there, you solved it. It's passwordless and it can't be cracked. I take exception to people that assume signed code is safe code. However, as we all know, as security professionals, the only thing that signed code demonstrates if the signature is valid is that it hasn't been modified since whenever the signature was generated. Well, in the case of SolarWinds, they were generating their own signatures too, the bad guys were. So you almost have to... And I'm going to go like nerdy and academic here. If you remember back in school, we were taught about Markovian chains, which was, you know, if you look at a graph of all the events that had to occur, you can mathematically calculate with a single digest whether all those things occurred if you structure things properly, right? So I think being able to apply, apply data structures like that could be helpful. And then you could use that as the final sniff test to say, hey, should machine one talk to machine two? Yeah, all the stuff checks out. We can talk. There you go. So yeah, there you go. That's the equivalent of the biometric fingerprint of the of the code up to that point. And now you've gone passwordless. And that and now we're back to business case. If we can get the whole universe passwordless as opposed to MFA, now we've got a strong business case. Gentlemen, ladies, we have heightened security and eased use of all things for the humans and the machines alike. If you can achieve that goal, your business case is a slam dunk. Improve security for everybody while making everything easier for everybody? Absolutely. Absolutely. Sign me up. So I think we got the business case nailed on that one, Alan. All right, cool. So MFA, passwordless, we sh- we pivoted and we got into, weirdly enough, the quote-unquote biometric uh, signatures of, uh, of non-human entities, which it was cracking me up because I was thinking like uh, chat GPT, we can do a, a voice imprint and that'll be chat GPT's signature and now chat GPT is, can go passwordless. Um I was, I was having fun with that. All right, let's pick a second one. We've, we've talked with MFA. We've kind of drifted into this one. I'm going to talk about this one. Um, and this one's going to be interesting because MFA rollouts, we started with the context of almost more in IT and enterprise. Let's talk about all the humans logging into their machines. And we morphed into we're a B2B generating software as a product. We kind of shifted from enterprise to B2B product. While we're in the B2B product space, uh, a topic near and dear to both our hearts, SBOM. I'm the business generating the code, and you are the security engineer telling me, guys, we have to generate an SBOM. It'll be better for our customers. What's our business case there? How is that better for our customers? The hassle and pain of creating and maintaining an SBOM, because once you've published it, they're always going to come back and say, but that bit's not up to date, and that bit's not up to date. You're not just publishing. You're now forcing patch cycles on a much more aggressive schedule. What's the business argument to say these customers will need, you know, there is a business valid reason to give these customers the SBOM they're looking for. So I was thinking over this and I was actually have, I was having dinner with uh, some friends of mine that are much smarter than me last night. And over large hunks of meat, we were discussing what the advantage of the SBOM would be. And here's the synopsis. I think the benefit of the SBOM, I will firstly acknowledge stuff like the executive order that says if you're going to transact with the business or with the government, rather, you're going to have to do it. Putting that to the side, why do I want to do it? To me, it's like asking what's the, what's the business value of your fuel gauge? It gives you telemetry that you can use to make other things better. Like on its own, it has no utility. Like it's just, it's a gauge, right? It's a needle moving back and forth, but you can make more educated choices about where you're driving, which stop to take, where you're going to fuel up. If you know how much gas is left in the tank, applying that to SBOM, it allows you to be much more surgical about the changes that you need to make for security errata. But it also 
is this consistent ingredient list that as a software engineer, if you don't know the stuff that's going in your software, that's kind of scary. <laughs> so it enforces a bit of like engineering discipline. But I think the other thing that it can do, if you're looking at it from the business perspective, if you instrument this right, and I've seen a number of, I'll say, interesting solutions that are currently in stealth that'll be coming out soon from a number of different companies. But think of it like being able to put tracers in your source code, right? And you don't need the tracer every time. But when something goes awry, when there's a another solar winds or something of that nature, being able to take a look at where those tracers show up and use that information to then say, oh gosh, you know what? We really missed, or Log4j is an even better example. If you have the tracer out, you know where Log4j is in the enterprise and you know that it's not going to be a single atomic operation updated, right? You're going to have to sequence things. It's going to have to be in order. Wouldn't it be great for you to be able to prioritize your remediation of that vulnerability based on the sensitivity of system it appeared on. And I think that's what an SBOM would allow because it allows you to quickly, from a business perspective, address the riskiest things first versus just having a brute force your way through. It's almost like, I'm trying to think of a good, I'm going to come up with another metaphor. You used fuel tank. I'm going to use another metaphor. We're going to go all the way back to grandma's cooking and we're going to go back to, um, you got your recipe for grandma's cookies. You take grandma's recipe and you make grandma's cookies. They're never as good as grandma's actual cookies, Right. They're never as good as hers, right? You try your best using the recipe she had. And the reason is she never quite followed the recipe. There were these these puts and gets that were a little bit different for hers that may not have been in the original source code, right, if you will. And what actually came out of it, it's almost as if what you really want to do is send it to a lab and reverse engineer grandma's cookies and write a new recipe off of what's actually in the cookies. That is your S-bomb. It's a great way of looking at it. I would also argue that it allows you to be more methodical. Like if you enforce this, anybody with a half-decent build system, this isn't going to be a significant amount of cognitive overhead. You're not asking your developers to write this down in like notepad afterwards. Integrated into your build process. Right, of course. The pipeline reports on itself as it goes through. Absolutely. And once you have that set and you have that discipline in play, it also allows you to be inquisitive about things, right? So it allows you to ask things like, hey, when did we start linking to that library? I don't recall that being there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a recipe with timestamps as well. That's a real good point. You've got That's it. a real good point. It's not just what went into the cookies, but were the eggs added before the dry ingredients or after? Maybe that's part of grandma's secret to success. Is she's adding the ingredients in a different order. Or when did we start adding vanilla? When did that happen? Oh, the new guy started adding vanilla. Back in 73, grandma first introduced <laughs> vanilla to the recipe. And, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, I think um, so. I think the utility of S bombs, just to get back to the original business case, putting the regulatory stuff on the shelf for a minute, it isn't the S bomb itself, but it's with good S bomb data, you can be a lot more efficient and surgical as to on the response side, where and how you do security triage. And from a built perspective, it also adds another layer to your QA, right? As a software engineer, you don't want to include more stuff because the more lines of code you have, the more lines of code could be vulnerable, right? You want to skinny it down as much as you can. And if we can put our code on a diet by sniffing through grandma's recipe and maybe cutting back on the butter some while, while still maintaining that fabulous taste, maybe that's maybe that's a, a bit of QA. And I get that the business doesn't always jump on the QA side, but if you term it as more efficient use of labor, maybe that's the business. You case. know that I'm going to draw another metaphor. This one's going to be so Texas. You're going to laugh uh, <laughs> when you're reloading your own ammunition uh -huh. and you shoot really obscure ancient calibers. 
mm-hmm. you will go through and find reloading manuals from the 30s and 40s and, and the turn of the century and the late 1800s that will tell you, go by, I'm going to make up names now, go by Smith's Powder Number 34. Smith's hadn't been in business in 80 years. So you find a book from 60 years ago that tells you Smith's number 84 is the equivalent of the new modern Johnson number 37. Eight grains of the old is seven grains of the new. Okay, there's your shift. But Johnson's is no longer made. And literally, if you reload the old calibers, you find yourself purchasing older and older and weirder and weirder reloading manuals and then having to fill the gaps and get the strange periods where the transitions occur. And you may go through as many as four or five translations to a modern powder to make sure the bullet you're putting together is not going to explode in your gun and turn it into a hand grenade. Um, that would be bad. So uh, it's super important to get this stuff right, right? This is, this is way more different than grandma's cookies. This is, you know, people die if the wrong decision is made. But those translations, that history of translation is there for you if you dig through and find it. The other thing that just occurred to me, and this definitely isn't my field of expertise, we should, uh, we should have one of our brothers or sisters of the healthcare profession vet this. But if I recall, things like FDA approvals, when it comes to software, require fairly diligent control over how you produce code, specifically around what changes are committed and which release. So back in the day, before I ever got into technology, um, as a kid in the high school, I used to work in a pharmaceutical factory. And the precision involved in formulation, like for compounding antacid, is unbelievable. Like the FDA has approved a thing that says this many grams of this, stir for exactly 28 minutes, add this many grams it's, of it's that. It's just like reloading. The whole process exactly. is highly, highly, highly dictated and specified. So I wonder, like, in healthcare, maybe having that similar level of precision when it comes to software, because I know software systems need to be validated in healthcare as well, could be an advantage in that industry. Yeah, that's interesting. I know from my background in financial sector, after the uh, the 08 financial crisis, regulators were extremely interested not only in the, like, lineage of the data, like, where did you get the data from that you used to build this risk model, but the lineage of the model itself. And that, I mean, kind of tilting the S-bomb on his head and just thinking about how the model would be created and what version of the model was used in a particular calculation, you can apply similar thinking there. So I think maybe even based on industry and the requirements of particular sectors, there could be S-bomb advantages that we haven't explored yet. I just personally, I'm not familiar with all industries. Pretty, pretty compelling business case for um, staying on top of the process, the ingredients and the recipe generating both, um, not just what goes in, but what are the eggs go in before the flour, et cetera. Like we've got, we've got a pretty compelling argument for the generator to say, hey, do all of this and you know what you have on the back end. You have prevented a solar winds. You have, you have bypassed the hazards of a log4j. You have quickly adapted to whatever tomorrow's log4j might be. These are compelling arguments for the for the development apparatus to where you're ultimately saying this is not just good security, but this is time saving. This is yes. this is um, this is ensuring consistent quality of product, et cetera, et cetera. Let's step all the way back now and say I'm the consumer um, because we uh-huh. started with that IT enterprise perspective. So we're going to close the show out with that perspective again. I'm Joe Average Business who happens to be consuming your SaaS service. And you're telling me all this hard work that you went into and the business case you sold internal to your organization, you got everybody bought in and all you guys are just S-bombing to this great degree of detail. And you're telling me my S-bomb is available and that's why you should buy me and not the other guy. Mm-hmm. How do I, what, what do I, I don't know, S-bomb. What's the, what's the business case to me, the consumer? 
I think it depends on who the consumer is. And here's why I say that. I think if the consumer is, if it's B2B, I think you can provide a similar rationalization to the risk or security organization of the other B, right? The other business is going to need to respond to stuff. And again, if you, if you put this back into Log4J, if I can tell you definitively whether my product had Log4J in it and which version, et cetera, et cetera, you would then be able to take appropriate action until I can release security errata to update the version of Log4J of present. Where I lose the plot, and it's hard for me to admit this because as a security guy, I just can't wrap my head around how I would, if Apple, my dad has an iPhone, if Apple produces an S-bomb for the iPhone, I'm not sure it's going to matter to my dad. You know what I mean? I, I want it to matter to my dad, but I haven't been able to think through. Maybe maybe you've got some Conne- thoughts. Connecting Alan. those dots. So I, my first thought before you brought dad into the picture was um, my security questionnaires and all that BS. But this is kind of what we talked about on our last show together was you right. do this S-bomb stuff right. And what one of the value props you're giving me is the consumer in your B2B model. I'm the other business consuming your services. Dude, you don't have to fool with that stupid questionnaire crap anymore. We'll answer the three or four questions about how we run our business and everything else. The system just tells you about itself. You're done. Sign here. We've eliminated a bunch of hassle. You're no longer. It's a build artifact. You know, I'm, I'm no longer your riskiest vendor or your least known vendor. I'm now your most known and least risky vendor. And you've had to minimize your time to get me to that state. Brilliant value prop business to business. We already kind of covered that on our last show. For those, go back and listen to the supply chain episode with Omkar and I from, I don't know, it was about a year ago now, I think. It was fun. It was a good episode. We we started solutioning things, which, you know, Omkar and I will get into <laughs> We'll do that in a heartbeat if we're not careful. We do that, don't we? But I'm, but I'm dad. Back to your question. I'm your dad. Why do I care about the S-bomb? You may not know this, dad, but you are putting forth a vast and infinite amount of trust into the universe every day you pick up your phone. And of the 27 apps on your phone, how many of them have some personal information of yours? How many of them did you give it a name? How many of them did you get an email? How many of them already know your phone number? That's kind of a personal bit of information. Most of these apps just pick up straight from the phone itself and may not even tell you they're picking up. Um, That amount of trust you're putting forth into each of these apps, you know bad guys are out there. You know bad things happen. You know there's, you know, you know, he doesn't know what a log for J or a solar winds are, but he knows you do this for a living and prevent these types of things on the regular. Those kinds of things that I have a whole career centered around stopping are happening live in real time to everybody with a phone today. And wouldn't you like this one app that you love the most? Wouldn't you love to have that comfort factor that you can give it your name? You can give it your address. You can give it your email address. You can give it your phone number. You can link your bank account to it and you're cool. That's your selling pitch to your dad. I think so. I guess the bit that I, maybe there's a product opportunity there for our listeners. Maybe there's a way of taking this from being a rote list of software libraries with funny names like Log4J and Zlib and Glibc and all that, and make it into a simplified nutrition label that the average person can do something We're back to grandma's cookies. Yeah. Warning contains lard. Oh, good to know. You know? Right. Right. Grandma's recipe called for lard. And and we're back to the reloading where the lard translates to oleo, which translates to Crisco, which translates to, you know. And by the way, that's why they tasted so good. That is why they tasted so good. (laughs) Grandma's Cajun cooking always had bacon fat. Absolutely. Yeah. So I I guess to get back to it, right, I don't think the the business value in the S-bomb has ever been the existence of the S-bomb itself. But it's, what do you do with it? It's a fuel gauge. Yeah. Yeah. And I worry that we as an industry have maybe pivoted to the, we must make the S-bomb. 
without thinking through the user journey that supports it. But I think discussions like this, I hope, will help people understand that this isn't just like a weird build artifact that the government's now asking you for. Like you can actually use this to make your business better, even if you're not a software company. And even if you're on the receiving end of it, you have, you have saved yourself massive amounts of hassle as well. Absolutely. Um, and simplified nutrition labels for the co consumers. I love it. There's and, your, and, there's a startup idea. Taking your 1890s uh, ammo loads and, and not blowing up your gun. Uh, and yeah, I'm not kidding. I, I, I had stuff all the way back to the 1890s when my father died, his collection I inherited. I mean, boxes and boxes of every single round was handmade by my dad. Crazy stuff. 35 Remington, 300 Savage, 303 Savage, like stuff that just hasn't existed in 80 or 100 years. Um, and building the Rosetta Stone of translation. Exactly. <laughs> and I had this stack of reloading manuals that this one was dated yep. in the 70s, and this one was in the 60s, and this one was in the 50s, and this one was in the 40s, and the 30s, and the 20s, and the... You know, I, how long it took him to amass all that, I couldn't tell you. I kept all the books. Uh, I no longer shoot any of the weird, obscure stuff because I'm just not going to sit there and make each cartridge by hand. But uh, Yeah, and the, the downside seems pretty severe. So um, I've been spending some time on self-improvement, and by that I mean geeking out on stuff. Um, I recently went pretty deep into Ansible. And, of course, all the things that everything that we've been taught as two guys growing up in tech is always test and test, never test and prod. Oh, right on. So... Um, key, keynote to remember here is automation makes all good things great and all bad things really, really bad. I was getting ready for what was going to be an interview at 9.30 a.m. I decided I'm going to push a trivial change to my routers via Ansible. <laughs> so I took the call from my phone and learned to only test in test and not in prod. Um, so this is my equivalent of loading up the grains. <laughs> the missus was not happy either. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, that, that, there you go. It blew up in your hands um, right at interview time, of course. All right. Well, Omkar Arasaratnam, thank you so much for coming on back to the ranch. This was a great conversation. Uh, I hope listeners, you guys found some interesting business thinking amidst all the techno geeking out. Uh, hopefully we've satisfied the mission of getting a good business case on the table. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now.